I think to sing that song together um, has to be either has to be one of two very drastically different things. Um, if you if you sing those words and do not know the reality of which they speak, that is dangerous. Maybe that song stirs up within you questions about the state of your soul and presses home to you that you're hearing people all around you singing with confidence. It is well with my soul because of Christ. And then the other experience is to sing that song and just, just to be blown away again, right? That, that we can stand in the presence of God and know that that our sin has been born, that our condition before God is one of, of righteousness and peace and life, that we can sing today the song that we will sing forever. So what a wonderful uh, thing for us to be able to do together and to hear each other uh, sing like that uh, and to sing those words in particular. Well, uh, that, <clears throat> that was off-road. That's not in the notes. Um, we, uh, several, several weeks ago, or actually several months ago, as, as Hal and I were talking about what to preach uh, after we were done with Mark, which we are now as of uh, last week, we, uh, you know, on the one hand, and we do that together all the time, uh, on the one hand, we, we can't go wrong, right? Uh, it's, preached, it's a big book, uh, you can preach anything. And yet, at the same time, we, we want as much as we can to have our, our preaching ministry to you, our ministry of the Word to you as God's people, uh, to be, you know, on the one hand, sensitive to our particular needs and situation as a church, uh, in many ways that parents, many of the same ways that parents would want to be attentive to their particular family situation and, and, and lead their family in ways that are attentive and also to be attentive to our situation as a church in our broader culture. What are some of the pressing issues that face the church uh, in our own day and age? And it, it really seemed wise to us to spend just a few weeks between now and, and the Advent Christmas season reflecting together on what the Bible says about the church, uh, about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to do, a, a six-week series on the church. Um, obviously, we're going to leave a lot unsaid, save it for another time. But we're convinced that one of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith, one of the most important teachings of Scripture, and one of the most neglected in our own day is the teaching about the character, the nature, the calling, the purpose of the church. And so we think it deserves a great deal of our attention, and so we want to devote at least a few weeks to it uh, this fall. Now, every one of you in this room has an opinion about the church. Every one of you, uh, beyond, if you're beyond more than just a few years old, has an opinion about the church. It may be a high op opinion, maybe a low opinion. It may be that you're somewhat indifferent to the church, which I, I think is sort of a low opinion. But inescapably, every one of you has an opinion about the church, and to a significant degree, what you think about the church has been shaped and conditioned by your experience of the church. 
Some of you were raised in the church like I, like I was. You're nurtured in the church. You came to faith in Christ in the context of the local church. You love the church. You're committed to her. You have a high view of the church. Some of you were raised in the church but had a somewhat less wonderful experience. Maybe that uh, could have involved any number of things, right? But you had a bad experience. You left for a while, maybe a long while, but, but now you're back to some degree. But maybe, maybe some of you feel like you're, you still have one foot on the shore. Uh, you don't have a terrible opinion of the church, but because of your bad experience, you're hesitant. You're not all in. Uh, still others of you are being raised in the church right now. I think of my own children and other covenant children here in this congregation. You're, you're, you're being raised in the church right now. It's just been part of your environment, part of your experience. You could be 6 or 10 or 13 or 17. Uh, even some of you who are uh, students in the university. For one reason or another, you, you've been raised in the church and it's been your environment. But the question for you is, what about you? What is your view of the church? What do you think of the church and why? Do you have a high view of the church or a low one? And then there may be some of you here this morning who have a very low opinion of the church. You may be here because of a friend or a family member. You may be here because life is just pressing in on you and you're, you're hoping you might find something in the church that would be helpful to you. But personally, your basic attitude towards the church maybe has been one of great skepticism or even cynicism or distaste or distrust. But the Bible, the Bible speaks about the church in a way that addresses every one of us. Whatever our background, whatever our opinions currently of the church are, because the Bible demonstrates and explicitly says, as we'll see this morning, that Jesus Christ, God's Son, the Savior of sinners, is passionately committed to building His church. You'll notice in the bulletin the title of the sermon series uh, over these next few weeks is The Church, Jesus' Mission in the World. That's a big statement. It's a very important statement if we understand what it's trying to communicate, which is that whatever you may think of the church, whatever your experiences of the church have been, you need to come to the realization that the church is what Jesus is most passionately interested in in this world. It's the church that He is building in this world. It's His mission. It's what He's doing. The church, to put it another way, is the place in the world where the grace and glory of Jesus Christ are most clearly and consistently on display. The church is Jesus' mission in the world. And over the next several weeks, we want to look at several ways in which the Bible develops this idea that the church is Jesus' mission in the world. And today, what I want us to see from Ephesians 5 is simply that Jesus loves His church. Now, that's a simple statement, isn't it? Jesus loves His church. It is a simple statement that's loaded with profound meaning, loaded with profound significance for us. Jesus, in fact, loves His church as a groom loves his bride. Now, the passage we're going to read this morning and, and study together is a very familiar one. Uh, obviously, as we'll see again, Paul is addressing husbands and wives, but what Paul is really drawing attention to is another relationship 
another marriage. There's certainly a lot that needs to be said from this passage about the marriage relationship. Uh, Even looking uh, out on some of you who have been recently married or who are about to be married soon, uh, rich, profound implications in this passage teaching on marriage. And yet Paul tells us in verse 32 that the greatest mystery, the most profound reality to which all of this text points is the relationship that exists between Christ, the bridegroom, and His church, which is His bride, His beloved. And so that's what I want us to focus on this morning, this relationship, this marriage between Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and the church, His beloved bride. So let's read together God's Word, Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 22. This is God's Word. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Lord, we have just read Your Word, the Word of the living God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and therefore coming to us with Your full divine authority over us, over Your church. And so we need to ask You, uh, our Father and our God, to humble us, that we would listen to You, that we would hear you, that we would respond to you with faith and repentance and obedience and love and all the things that are appropriate. Lord, speak, we pray. Speak to us. Lead us and help us, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. We're wanting to consider this morning, just again, that very simple reality but profoundly important one, that as we begin to think about the church, we're beginning with this wonderful reality, this loves us with a self-sacrificing, sanctifying, steadfast love. This marriage imagery that Paul uses in Ephesians is, of course, not new in the Bible. Paul is, is using imagery that is richly presented throughout Scripture. 
In fact, in the Old Testament, sometimes in very dramatic, uh, even graphic ways, God portrays Himself as a husband who will love His people faithfully despite their infidelity to Him. You think, for instance, of the 16th chapter of Ezekiel. More beautifully, as we read from Isaiah 62 this morning, that God portrays Himself as a husband to His bride. In fact, as a husband who loves an unlovely woman, a woman who's defiled, a woman who's been cast away, a woman who is not attractive. But His love is so powerful that what does it do? It makes lovely. It finds that which is unlovely and makes it lovely. That's how powerful the love of God is. You see that very powerfully, of course, in, in Hosea, the first of the so-called minor prophets, where God commands the prophet to go and marry an unfaithful woman. Very painful way for Hosea to learn the message that he preaches. God is faithful to the faithless, to the unfaithful, to the adulteress. God is faithful. And God says to Hosea and to His people through Hosea, I will, listen to this language, I will betroth you to me forever. I will take you and make you, I will bind you to myself in love. I will commit and pledge myself to you. I will make you mine. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and in mercy, and you shall know the Lord. We find it beautifully in the passage that Matt read earlier from Isaiah 62 where God says, by the way, in the midst of Israel's rebellion, not at a high point in their lives spiritually, but at a train wreck low point in their lives, God says, let me tell you how I love you. As the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so I will rejoice over you. Now, I, I, don't know, I don't know exactly what it has been like for you to try to process that. But can you, begin, can you begin to even approach the territory of conceiving what God is saying to you? That God's not just saying, well, you, you sit over there and I'll sit over here and I guess we're okay now. I'm not angry with you anymore. No, God says, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so I, the Lord, rejoice over you. God's relationship to his people is so intimate that marriage is the only thing we know that can begin to compare to it. And that's what we find here in Ephesians 5. Paul can't talk about marriage between a man and a woman without talking about the one flesh relationship that exists between Jesus and his people absolutely astonishing. And he takes us right to the heart of the unfathomable love that God has for us because he doesn't just tell us that Jesus loves us, though that would be wonderful in itself. But he goes into detail and shows us what the love of Christ means for him and has meant for him. He tells us what it means for us and is and will mean for us. To the point where, and again, we're used to looking at this text in terms of its teaching on marriage between men and women. 
But when you begin to see that the great mystery that this text holds out is the relationship between Christ and His bride, you, the church, then you, I, I think, begin to realize this, this passage is like, it's like someone bringing you into a king's palace, and you think it's great to be in a king's palace, and they say, wait a minute, come here, you got to see this, and they take you into this secret chamber, and you think, wow, this is a secret chamber. Not everybody gets to come in here. This is pretty special. He says, wait a minute. Come, in, come over here, and he op- opens a secret room that comes off of the king's chamber, and it's just full of treasure. And you think, wow, I've never seen such treasure. And then he says, oh, and it's all for you. That's what this text is like, because it's just deeper and deeper and down and down, and Paul's showing us as the church, this is what the love of Jesus is like, so that you would feast on Him so that you would live in His love, so that you would not doubt Him, but so that you would see His love for you and respond as a bride to her loving husband. So what do we see? We see in verse 25 that the love of Jesus for His church is a self-sacrificing love. You see Paul turns to husbands. You know, it's always hard. It's always hard as a minister to preach the Bible because you, you're, you're on the operating table first, <laughs> okay? At least unless your heart's not hard. And it's especially hard <laughs> to preach about what husbands are supposed to do with their wives as a husband who fails terribly. But Paul, you see, says, husbands, love your wives. How? as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. You see, His point is to, okay, I'm talking to you husbands, but really, let me me move the attention over here where it ought to be, on Christ, on His self-sacrificing love for His bride. He gave Himself up for her, and that's why husbands are called to love their wives, to give ourselves up for them, to lay our lives down for them, to put their interests ahead of our own, to lift them up so that they go up even if we go down, to sacrifice ourselves for them. Well, why, why, is, the, why is this call to husbands so profoundly self-sacrificial? Because the love of Christ is so profoundly self-sacrificial. This is just gloriously the way that Jesus loves us by laying His life down. And that's Paul's point. And as I feel this text personally, wanting to love Alicia this way, but failing, the attention of this text is on Jesus who never fails to love you this way. Never. He is the husband to his bride. And his love has been and will be giving but it supremely was giving on the tree. As he laid down his life, he gave himself up. All that we've been seeing in Mark's gospel the last several weeks is we went darker and deeper down, didn't we, week after week, and we saw the loneliness of Christ, his tribulation, his affliction, his mockery, his rejection, the despising that people had for him, the accusations that were flung at him, the abuses that were heaped upon him, and ultimately the death that He endured on the cross, remaining then under the power of death for a time as He went into the grave. 
That's the measure of Christ's love for you. That's the measure of Christ's love for His church. It's love that gives, but it gives for who? It gives for those who despise Him. It lays His life down for sinners, not for good people. For those who rejected and abandoned and doubted and opposed Him and hated Him, these were the people God gave Him. These were, this was the bride the Father gave to His Son. And Jesus did not say, are you kidding me? I can do better. He willingly embraces His bride. You, the church. Now, shouldn't this absolutely captivate and thrill us? That this Jesus, who's the king over all of the heavens and the earth, has come down so far to know you by name and to love you like this, not to be okay with you, not to regard you positively, but to rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, to give his life for you, to lay himself down for you, to put your interests above his own. And then all kinds of questions can begin to come into our mind, like, well, then how could I continue to resist Him like I have? How could I continue to treat others the way I have treated them? When Jesus, who's infinitely greater than me, has treated me with such affection, with such self-sacrifice. And that's exactly the logic of the New Testament, 1 John 4, beloved, if God so loved us, then we ought to what? So love each other. If this is how Jesus loves the church, it certainly has implications for for husbands, but it also has implications for how we regard the church. It's easy to talk bad about the church, isn't it? It's easy to see the warts on her face, the ugliness. Jesus loves her. Jesus loves His bride, gave Himself for her with a love that's self-sacrificing, but also a love that is sanctifying. You see verses 26 and 27. Paul shows us not just that Christ's love is self-sacrificing, which is the nature of His love, but He also shows us the goal of His love. Jesus gave up His life for the church that, in order that, so that He might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus loves the church. His love is self-sacrificing, and His love moves you to to holiness. His love sanctifies you. His love takes you where you are but doesn't leave you there. Again, Ezekiel 16, this amazing picture is actually very shocking if you sit down when you read it. The Lord marries this. He takes this unholy, ugly, discarded baby girl who's left bloody in the wilderness, and no one wants her. She's in her blood. And the Lord comes, and He takes the hem of His garment, and He spreads it over her. It's a sign of embrace and of covenant love. And He marries her. And His love is so powerful that it causes her to grow up and become beautiful. 
You see, that's the love of Jesus for His church. That's what He's doing in the life of every Christian. That's what He's doing in the life of His church everywhere around the world, even right now. He nourishes us. He cherishes us, causes us to, to grow up and become beautiful, to become holy, to become pleasing to God, obedient to Him, fruitful, mature. And why does He do this? Why does He nourish us? Why does He cherish the church? The text tells us this, and this is it's astound, because we are His flesh. You see what He says to husbands? No, no one uh, hates his own flesh, but loves it, nourishes it, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of His body. You hear how close that is? Christ's sanctifying love for His church is, is, is a love that, that binds us so closely to Him that He regards you and I as believers, He regards us as His own flesh and blood. You feel like Jesus is far from you sometimes. I know, I know you do. But here in His Word, Jesus says, you're my own flesh and blood. I'm one with you. I've bound myself to you. You're mine, and I will treat you as my own flesh, nourishing, cherishing, building, washing, sanctifying. Now, again, it's so easy to see the flaws of the church, to see flaws in our own lives. But God's promise is that Jesus' love for us is so powerful that what? We will stand before Him spotless in splendor, radiant. Language is describing the clothes that you're going to have on on the last day. You're going to be so beautiful. We're going to be so… You think about that with a wedding, right? You look forward. Everybody… Nobody nobody stands up and gets all excited when the guys walk in from over here. But everybody's on their feet, and, you know, everybody's doing this because they want to see what? They want to see the bride. They want to see her the moment she appears and begins to walk. And it's not because they expect her to be dirty or to be unimpressive, but she's always beautiful and radiant. That's the picture of the church that we have here. Jesus loves His church and is loving His church in such a way that whatever we see now, and it's, it's a mess, often it's a mess, but you need to look and I need to look at the present condition of the church in light of the future condition of the church, which is what we're told about here. The church, we, the bride of Jesus Christ, will stand spotless, radiant. The whole world will be trying to get a look at you, at the church. Wow, look at her. But what's the point? Look at her. Look at what He's done in her. Look at what He's made of her. Who would have thought… (laughs) Look at what He's made of her. That's the significance that Paul is driving at with the sanctifying love of Jesus here, that before the holy gaze of God, we won't have a spot on us. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what His love does. If you're a Christian, if you belong to Christ, that's what He's doing in you now. That's what He's doing in your fellow believers. 
So maybe we can be a little bit more patient with one another. Maybe we can be also a little more bold with one another. Not be so content with sinful status quo because, well, I'm just a sinner. I'm the bride of Christ. This is the pattern of His work in us. But the patience comes from realizing He is doing this. He will have it done. And then finally, His love is steadfast. And that's really just a way of drawing attention to something we've said already. In verses 31 and 32, we see that Jesus has has held fast to His bride. He won't let go. His love doesn't stop. It doesn't get weak. It doesn't go up and down like ours does. It's steadfast. He becomes one with us, dwells within us. We have everything in Him. He'll never let us go. You see this love? This, this Jesus who is the King, who's our head, loves us. His love is self-sacrificing. It's sanctifying. It's steadfast. I want to tell you about two different Charleses. The first is Charles Spurgeon. Here was his counsel. Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect. True? And I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, you probably heard the rest. I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been perfect after I had become a member of it. Still, and here's, here's his takeaway, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. See, the more we focus on who Christ is and on the depth and power and effect of His love for His church, it should do two things. It should intensify more and more and more and more our love for Him. It's an awesome thing to be loved, really loved, isn't it? just opens you up. And that's what the love of Christ is intended to do, to open you up more and more to Him, to enjoying Him. But it also should raise our opinion of His bride, the one who He loves so much. The other Charles is Charles Hodge, uh, 18th, uh, no, I'm sorry, 19th century uh, Presbyterian theologian. And a few years ago, there, were, there was a biography that came out about him. There were two, actually, that came out at the same time. And <clears throat> very moving account of his last days with his wife, Sarah, who died relatively young, about 50 years old, Christmas, 1849, Christmas Day. And it describes how, in her weakness, the hours that her husband, Charles, would spend with her often just lying down next to her, holding her hand, just talking. And during during her final weeks, apparently Sarah asked her husband to tell her in detail uh, how much he loved her, which he did, apparently. And they spent time rehearsing some of the high points in their life together over the years. And Charles, in turn, asked his wife Sarah, 
Well, tell me, how, how have I done? Have I been a good husband? And the story, as it's told, is that she, she reaches to him and, and caresses his face and says, there never was, never was another. There never was such another, she says to him. You see, that, that I think, captures what this text, as we begin to reflect on the church together, this text is drawing our eyes in our own weakness and infirmity to our Savior, to our head, who, as it were, lies with us in our weakness, who speaks with us, who encourages us, and if you're seeing him more and more, draws out from you the same response that Sarah gave to her husband Charles. There never was such another. There never was such a husband. There never was such a lover of his bride as Jesus is. Are you able to see that now? Do you know this great Jesus, this great husband? If so, do you see that this is how he loves you? Do you see that this is how he loves all of his church? If you don't think highly of the church, then you honestly don't think highly of Christ. Because you cannot profess to love him and then be dismissive or indifferent to his bride. It does not ever work that way. But if we have a clear view of Christ's love for the church and we're really growing in our love for him, then we'll love what he loves, right? We'll love what he loves. To love him is to love his bride. To be committed to him is to be committed to his bride. The church is Jesus' beloved mission in the world, and therefore is to be ours as well. Let's pray. Lord, we, we do marvel uh, at your loving authority over us, in particular the depth of your love for your bride. As we come to the table where we have fellowship with you, our great head and king and husband, Lord, please show us areas of our lives where we have resisted you, are resisting you, that we would submit willingly and gladly to the lover of our souls, our great head and, and bridegroom. And as we eat and drink, impress upon us again the depth and power of the love of Christ for His church, that we would continue to grow up in Him and be at that last day that radiant bride that He is making us to be. Help us to live now in light of what we will be on that day. In Christ's name, amen. If the elders will come forward as we prepare to come and meet the Lord at His table. Thank <clears throat> you.